Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exists in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have another founder and another one that is a quite successful, um, you know, in in their in their own path. So I guess without further ado, Anthemos Georgiades from Sumper, welcome on board. Hey, thanks for having me. Really, really nice to have you here, and you know, excited for the for the chat that we have ahead here. So, so tell me your story a little bit here, Anthemos. What what what's your story, and how most importantly, how did you get started with the entrepreneurial bug yeah um so greek name british accent uh grew up in london uh never thought i'd be an entrepreneur had worked at the boston consulting group had worked in politics but um was drawn into it just to solve a problem as i think so many entrepreneurs are uh, for me it was obviously zumper as an apartment rental platform uh, at college in the uk i'd had like multiple issues renting apartments my friends I had to camp out overnight outside a property management office to get access to the new apartments. And this is in a world where, you know, things are coming online. Uh, you, you can order a car by your phone. You can book a hotel online. It seemed crazy that the real estate industry wasn't moving towards on-demand. And so I didn't really think about it too often because this was kind of originally 15 years ago. And um, But then I moved another six or seven times into apartment rentals in London, in Boston, in New York. And the process was so bad every time, not just in searching, but also in actually like getting the apartment. There was no book button. And so I I finally just gave in and thought, no one's going to build this. It has to be me. And that's how I started the company uh, six years ago at business school. So it was never a, I want to be an entrepreneur journey. It was always a, man, there is a really tough problem that consumers experience and no one's solving it. So that's how Zumper got started. Got it. And and before we actually dive into the into the journey here, so consulting and business school. I mean, this is this is a you know a few things that I that I typically hear. So uh, from some of our other guests. So I guess how did that consulting experience shape up your approach in terms of like tackling problems and and the entrepreneurial journey itself? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, BCG, I think it was just watch, you get access as a 23-year-old to CEOs who've been working for 40 years and it's kind of crazy in consulting. You you take the shortcut in your career to being 
in the boardroom. And so I learned a lot uh, through companies that I love, these companies that I thought were doing crazy things. I, I learned so much. And then at, at business school, I think the single biggest thing I learned um, through the case study method, which is how they teach it at Harvard Business School, but I think it's true of a lot of business schools, was how to make decisions with imperfect information. It was not something I'd ever really thought about before. Um, but there's, there's no right answer in business. You rarely have enough data to make the absolutely correct decision. And I think a lot of businesses fail, especially startups, when they mo don't make decisions fast enough. Um, business school, through the case study method, taught me how to feel confident making decisions without perfect information uh, and how to use data to kind of then review once you've launched something, whether it was right or wrong. And so when you think about A-B testing frameworks, you think about how many startups pivot, that is a critical lesson uh, grad school taught me. Got it, got it. So let's talk about Shumper here. So how did you meet your co-founders? Yeah, um, we, um, uh, I met Russell, uh, who runs kind of a lot of our growth engineering products um, through um, just the personal connections in London. He'd actually interviewed me for a job at a different consulting firm. And uh, we stayed in touch. We both wanted to be entrepreneurs. Well, we both had ideas to be entrepreneurs, but neither of us had <laughs> could have had the guts to actually go for it. And then when I moved out to America, Russell was a software engineer at Google, and I had no technical background. So I, uh, I, I basically hit up my network for anyone with a technical background living in the U.S. who might be interested in joining. And, and Russ and I really hit it off, and he was the perfect co-founder. And then my other co-founder called Taylor, um, I met through his mother, who was an HBS alum, and that was another example of just pure hustle. He is, uh, runs all of our kind of operations, and he came from the real estate industry, so completely different backgrounds. To me. And it, neither of them was an obvious kind of pick when I started the company at grad school. I, I didn't think of either of them originally. It was just purely hustling my network for six months to find people who were really great cultural fits, but also had very different skill sets to the one I, I had. So Co-founders are difficult, especially if you're not technical. It's really hard to find a good technical co-founder. But the great thing is that once you do, and it takes a long time, they are able to attract the next generation of talent into the company. And that's how you kind of build your engineering team out. Got it. And I mean, it's it's quite a, a few co-founders. So I guess in, in your guys' case, how did you deal with the egos and then more importantly how did you define the responsibilities early on so that you had kind of like that healthy culture going on yeah and it's hard we, we also actually had a, a really wonderful fourth co-founder who's no longer with us um she was our original cto and after the series a uh, she moved on to a, a role at another company and and we promoted someone internally to cto so it doesn't always work out and i think that's fine we're incredibly grateful for everything she did and she remains kind of a shareholder in the company um in terms of the dynamics i think in the early days you kind of through osmosis graduate towards like the the things that are important you you know we had like four people at the company for the first year or maybe five for the first year and so there's so much to do and there's so little time and so few resources that you actually I, there's no real intellectual whiteboarding session that you do to carve up roles. You kind of just are all in on all the roles. I think where the carving up of roles starts to happen is probably around 10, 12 people where you no longer just 
know have ICs, you start to build depth and management structures. I think at that stage it makes sense. The honest answer in the early days, and it worked, was it was just all hands to the pump. Everyone uh, filling gaps where they could, and it tended to self-select the filling gaps into kind of where you were skilled. And so I think that the most obvious thing to do for that is is to hire people with very different skill sets to you. That allows you to never really have awkward overlap and egos because everyone's kind of skilled at something very unique. Um, I think if you hire four co-founders like yourself, that's difficult. And um, luckily, we didn't have that problem. So I guess, uh, I guess, I guess in in you know, just to like uh, follow up on that, what in your mind and obviously in what you've seen uh, creates really that magical relationship between co-founders? Like, what what have you seen that really works? Yeah, I think it's um, it's probably the 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 DNA of your culture is I think. A lot of it's built in the tough times. So in the first two years, you know, Zumper has now raised like $90 million in capital. A lot of that's in the bank. We're growing very quickly. But none of that was true, obviously, in the first two years. We raised like a million dollars in seed money. That was running out. We tried various things that didn't work. And I think the fabric of our culture that is still true today, when we have, you know, 100 people, is built in the dark days, in those days where your your stuff's not working, your users aren't growing. And it's how you look at your teammates and how you guys turn up on a on a Monday morning after a really crappy week the week before, where you know maybe someone quit or maybe the metrics went south. When you look your co-founders, your team in the eye and you know they're ready to go and they're resilient and they they come back in to build and try the next thing. And that you've kind of worked out together that you, this is part of the game. It's not supposed to be easy. You're supposed to try six things that don't work. When you just get to this this kind of motion of you all feel the same and you kind of pull in the same direction. You kind of you look at your your co-founders and you know that they understand that and that they're not freaking out. That is where you build real institutional culture, and then you try and grow that across the team. So paradoxically. The, I don't think the core DNA of a company's culture is built at ski trips or off-sites. It's really built in the dark days of when stuff is really difficult. And I think Zumpa's culture now, even though we have a lot of users, still remembers and is a testament to those dark days. And we never take anything for granted. I love it. I mean, it's uh, at the end of the day, uh, building and scaling companies, especially when, when you're at the early stage, is, is all about survival. And it's all about, you know, learning to be with each other behind the trenches and really going to war and having each other's back. So I am completely there with you. It's not about the ski trips and, and any of that, uh, uh, you know, budget that, in my opinion, you know, perhaps should be allocated to something else. You know, I think that uh, startups end up wasting a lot of cash, you know, that could really extend runway. But that's a different uh, conversation. So, Anthemos, what's the uh, business model here? Yeah, so, uh, so Zumper is, um, our vision for the company is to make renting an apartment as easy as booking a hotel. We envision a world in which a renter can find apartments, book into tours, turn up the tour, and if they want to take the apartment, pre-qualify, leave a deposit, and book the apartment. Then behind the scenes, Zumper will kind of close the transaction with the landlord and set the renter up with kind of rent payment. So we we want to be the first ever kind of full stack uh, rental platform for long-term leases. And um, we monetize that two ways. So we have, you know, 
uh, several million users uh, using our platform every month now, which is great. Um, and next year, we want it to be tens of millions of users a month. Uh, and we're, we're close to doing that. So the way we monetize is we either uh, we monetize the landlord uh, mainly, and we either charge them for leads, meaning, hey, we send you a ton of leads this month that closed into leases. We're going to charge you per lead. Or uh, for the smaller landlords, we charge them uh, if they opt into this for the transaction. So we say to small landlords, hey, don't just advertise this number. We'll help you pre-qualify renters and actually get the renter into your lease signing the documents, paying the first month's deposit, but we'll charge you as a percentage of the, the lease value. They are the two ways that Zumper currently monetizes, and, and that they are our two focuses going forward. Got it. Got it. So, so for the business, uh, Anthemos, how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, so we, um, we've raised uh, $90 million in capital, uh, including a, a Series C that we just closed three months ago of like $46 million. So the majority of that is still in the bank, um, but uh, yeah, we, we've raised 90 in capital, aren't you? And did Question. you did you diversify the um, this responsibility with with the other uh, co-founders, or was there one of you guys that has always been leading the chart on the financing side? Yeah, um, I uh, so I'm the CEO, and I've always felt it was my responsibility to do the fundraising. Um, so. C, Series A, Series B, Series C. I was always the point person on the fundraise. Now, my co-founders were phenomenal in bringing them to meetings. They're, they're both incredibly smart, as are my executive team, who are also like critical to the fundraise, where I'll go in and sell the vision, often alone. I'll set the first couple of meetings up alone, but it's been wonderful as we've grown our executive team to be able to bring in like our, our VP of sales or our head of growth Into, or our CTO into the meetings afterwards when they want to meet the team. And, and the biggest change um, in the Series C I just raised versus in the early days is having a, a CFO. So our CFO is fantastic. And um, what he was able to bring to the Series C was real credibility where I'd uh, meet the investors, get them excited about our vision and our story. And then they'd spend hours with the CFO in a second or third meeting digesting on our historical financials and talking about uh, where we're headed. It, it just really helps to divide and conquer like that while I was meeting kind of new investors again. At scale, you get to do that and have those teams. In the early days, you are, as the CEO, you are the fundraiser, you are the effective CFO, you're the head of sales, and you kind of have to do the whole thing. Over time, it's great to be able to bring in your team. It looks better for investors, and it makes your life easier. Got it. Got it. And And your cap table, I mean, as I was reviewing, I just felt as I was, uh, you know, looking at the Oscars of uh, Silicon Valley, yeah. the, the red carpet. So I saw NEA, I saw Kleiner Perkins, Greylock, Andreessen Horowitz, just to, to name a few. How did you find these investors? Yeah. Um, so I, as a British person moving to Silicon Valley in 2012, I um, had never run a startup before. I had capital before. So a lot of it was um, completely bottom-up. I had no experience doing that. Saying that, it's, uh, I, I, I had connections through both business school and previous people that have gone through BCG and venture capital. And as most of your listeners and entrepreneurs will know, so much of this is about like getting warm introductions to VCs. So I, I did have a, a couple of cheats to get in uh, through the HBA network or through the BCG network. And whereas Silicon Valley is meritocratic mostly in terms of great companies 
just break out and succeed agnostic as to where people went to college or kind of if they came from a wealthy or poor family, it is not totally meritocratic. And, and that's where it's still unfair. And I think Silicon Valley has a long way to go where when I got my first introductions to VCs, to Kleiner, to Andreessen, to Greylock, to NEA, it often came through my graduate school network where someone was like, hey, this guy is leaving HBS. You went to HBS 10 years ago. Could you meet him? And so whereas that didn't guarantee any success, we obviously had to have really good numbers and a really good story uh, to tell them. Uh, I sh- you, you shamelessly have to mine your network. And I think all CEOs and entrepreneurs have to find that edge of how do they meet one of these investors? How do they meet someone that knows them? So, yep, we have a great cap table. We love our investors. Um, it was incredibly difficult. You always have more no's than more yeses in fundraising. But it was ultimately about just hustling my network uh, as much as possible. And and talking about hustling the network, so was there like any, because I mean, those networks that you had, I think the uh, network of Harvard is, is really fantastic. And then, you know, the BCG as well. But is there like any process that you followed to um, to really, you know, like leverage the network? Yeah, no, not really, actually. Um, I, I kind of looked through LinkedIn and Crunchbase uh, at which connections I had into which funds. Um, if, if you don't have those connections, uh, I think this is where, like, uh, a lot of these accelerators and incubators, like Y Combinator or Techstars or Launch, are really good where they you can cold apply. They take every um, – some people go in warm, but if you have a brilliant idea, I, I, they'd be crazy not to take it. And then their entire value is to obviously give you a three-month program and at the end expose you to like 40 investors. Uh, We didn't go that route because I had the network. But if I didn't have the network, uh, and some people have the network and still do it, they are really good cheap into uh, getting scale quickly. So I I guess, you know, like one thing that to follow up on this, I was – I was really impressed when, because it's it's not hard, it's almost impossible to land uh, VCs such as Kleiner Perkins on your, literally your first financing round, the seed round. So yeah. what was that What was that process? Like you were talking about, yes, your network of, of Harvard, but can you share with us, like, what was that process of landing Kleiner on your seed round? Yeah, sure. I mean, to your point, the network gets you an intro, but you know, a lot of those intros are ten-minute meetings where the VC immediately decides it's not for them. So, which is totally fair. Um, so, uh, you still have to land it, and once you're in the door, it doesn't matter where you come from. You have to have something good. So, for Zumper, um, our vision was, as I mentioned, to make renting an apartment as easy as booking a hotel. And so, instead of going in with just an idea, I built like a really crappy version of uh, the end game that I wanted to build, and we we built this website using an outsourced development uh, shop in, in Europe that just tested one assumption of the end game, which was, can we get users in 2011, 2012, just as mobile was coming online, to apply and close apartments from their phone? And even though that sounds so obvious six years later, people just weren't doing this in uh, 2011, 2012. And we, we created a bunch of data that overwhelmingly showed that renters wanted to be applying for apartments from their phone. They wanted to close apartments like they book a hotel. And so we took this data from like 35 different apartments we leased using this technology in San Francisco to VCs and said, hey, we're going to go rebuild all of this. But here's some data that shows that this really can work at scale. And that was how we raised the first million dollars from from some of the names that you mentioned. Got it. Got it. And 
And we were talking about the uh, $46 million round, which was the, um, the C round, C as in cat. And, and basically what you were talking about, I mean, what, what I've saw and what I've seen is that, you know, you guys have shifted a little bit the strategy. So I saw, for example, Axel Springer, which is, you know, more kind of like the corporate side. So what I wanted to ask you here is in terms of onboarding, let's say this type of, because it's a different beast, you know, type of, of investors. So how does the approach from evaluating an investor that is a VC or let's say an angel or an angel group shift towards evaluating a potential strategic corporation that is looking to become part of your cap table? Yeah. Um, in the, in the early days, we loved the exposure to Silicon Valley investors. So, um, my two board members from the early investments are, uh, Chihua Chen, who now runs fun called Goodwater, um, but was originally at Kleiner, and then Eric Feng from Kleiner. And they're both experts at product market fit. How do you take a company with no traction to 10 million in revenue? They are brilliant at that. And then as we, as we looked at the C round, Axel Springer, who are fantastic, uh, were a good example, as well as Stereo Capital, the other uh, large investor in this round. Um, at scale. So once you have product market fit, how do you scale that? How do you scale like 20 million in revenue to 200 million in revenue? And uh, we didn't need kind of the more product market fit kind of investors because we already have fantastic people at that. So I think as your company matures, you look for investors who have something that you don't have. And so for us, we're not yet doing $100 million in revenue. We want investors who look at $100 million in revenue as table stakes but they want to grow you to a billion. And so uh, as you mature, you look for a different kind of investor and that naturally tends to happen. Got it. And it, were there like, obviously, you know, now you're opening here the, um, the cap table to a different breed. And I guess when, when that happened, probably at um, a strategic level, let's say like from a board perspective or something, you know, maybe you receive some type of recommendations, you know, whether it was with this corporation or with other corporations as to what perhaps to look for and what to avoid. I mean, if you could give some some kind of like a, a tips, you know, both fronts, it would be really fantastic because I, I speak with a ton of founders that are, you know, perhaps opening up the possibility of bringing on corporations. And I think that, you know, you need to really do it right. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And um, we, we've only been working with Axel Springer for four months now, but they, they are fantastic. Um, I, think, I think just upfront boundaries before you close the rounds is super important. So, you know, I think um, Axel Springer are very used to operating companies at massive scale. And, you know, we were very clear with Axel Springer that we, we have a lot of consumer scale. So we have a lot of people use our, our platform on a monthly basis. But we're still building the revenue story, obviously, as they knew. And I think for us, it was like telling Axel and the rest of our investors that there are going to be months where we massively beat plan, and there'll be months where we're behind plan. And we're just a little earlier than, a, obviously, a public company. And so our growth is spikier. And it was just worth being up, up front with them during the, the process that like, it's a startup still, we're, we're growth stage, but not to expect us to be able to predict our quarters like a public company can. Um, I think if you set those expectations from the very beginning, that's super important. I think it's easy not to set those expectations and get caught in a relationship where neither side has been clear on what they expect. Um, for all good companies with multiple offers on the table, you can set the expectations and then see what happens. And if it's, if it's not a good fit up front, you can go with a different option on the table. For us, 
I, I think they fully understand the entrepreneurial journey and uh, we're really excited to have them on board. Got it, got it. So in terms of the of timeline, so you were mentioning that the C round, you guys closed this 46 million uh, a couple of months ago. So I guess, what was the timeline of this C round compared to perhaps your seed round of 2012? Yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this, uh, who's raising money now. I am, um, I'd, I'd say like from the first pitch to the day the money wires, there's always been around like a minimum of three months. You'll, you'll get the, you'll get term sheets and yeses hopefully quicker than that. But, um, it, this process takes a while and, and, as the money uh, increases and if your rounds become more complicated, it can take more than three months as well. So I'd say three months is an efficient round. I know entrepreneurs who spent nine months raising their rounds, which is, sounds like a long time, um, but they got great rounds done. They were really sexy companies and really fantastic fundraisers, but the round just took a long time. It was complex and diligence took a long time. So I'd say your first month is spent like getting first, second, third meetings. Your second month, is spent getting term sheets and document size and your third month is uh, getting kind of diligence done and getting the wires into the door. And, and as you know, and as your listeners know, you're going to get a lot of no's on the way. For every successful fundraise, every single company's had a lot of no's that yeah. you just can't get spooked. It's just part of the game. Every fantastic company has had uh, hundreds of no's on, on the way to kind of huge outcomes. And it's, you just can't take it past. Got it. I mean, it's just, just part of the game and, it doesn't necessarily, yeah. Just out of curiosity, Anthemos, like how many no's uh, did you get, for example, on your seed round, if you had to count them? Oh, yeah. I mean, on the seed round back in 2012, um, we had probably like five investors come into the seed round. So we kind of had five yeses who all put in kind of small checks. But, oh, we must have had like 20 passes or 20 people say, not now or later. And, and to be fair, some of those 20 late, did indeed come back later to invest. But yeah. I remember being in Boston and I pitched all of the East Coast investors first because I was on the East Coast and they were straight nose. Everyone in Boston, everyone in New York was straight nose and don't even think we got second meetings. But then a month later, we came to Silicon Valley and we found a much better product market fit for the kind of investor who was prepared to come early and invest early. And we got a lot of yeses very quickly. So you kind of just have to feel out your fit. But just to be clear, yeah, we had far more no's than yeses uh, at the seed round. And it's, got it's it. be fine and part of the game. Got it, got it. No, absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of preparation, uh, Anthemos, uh, what, what was the, uh, how has the uh, preparation, like preparing before going to market to start, you know, engaging with investors, how have you seen with your business, with Sumper, how have you seen that changed over time as the rounds were maturing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at seed rounds, it's like an idea. At Series A, you've got to show product market fit in a sub-vertical. At Series B, you've got to show product market fit across the board with some revenue. And then at Series C, you've got to show real traction and real revenue and a, a proper P&L. The one unifying theme in every fundraise I've run is momentum. That you, There's never like an exact number you need. Like when Uber raised money or you know Zillow raised money, there's never like a, a number they have to be at. Every company is completely different and there's no gold standard. But I will say the one thing that is true is that you always raise on momentum. So when you go into a fundraise in terms of preparation, 
the most important thing is that your last six months are growth and that you you your most important metrics are all growing really nicely for kind of five, six months in a row. That is a fantastic story to tell to an investor. Got it. So I guess in, for example, like for a marketplace or let's say for, for the people that are listening to us, like what kind of metrics do you think for the most part, you know, if we're talking about hyper growth companies, you know, like they should be a little bit more mindful uh, about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you ours at the seed stage uh, and the series A stage our growth curves are all about supply side. So we're a two-sided marketplace, chicken and egg, on day zero, you have no renters and no landlords. How do you solve that? So we solved it for the first two years purely by getting landlords on board through various kind of uh, product strategies. And so our growth curves for the first two years that we raised the Series A on were purely about landlords and listings. How many landlords do we have on the site? How many listings do we have on the site? After that, it changed to more consumers. So the Series B was done on a story of now look at how quickly the renters are growing onto the platform. Now we have supply. So the six-month curve at the Series B was all about users and millions of monthly users. And then at the Series C, it was much more a revenue curve. Look how quickly our revenue is scaling. So if the story has changed in a way that mirrors the focus of the company, but what is consistent every single time we've raised is that for six months in a row, we've had really, really, really quick growth. And investors love that story because it's easy to believe that you can continue to do that. Got it. You know, and it's interesting that you mentioned the chicken and the egg. I was also doing, I've been doing marketplaces for, you know, I think like 10 years now. And yep. yeah, I remember on the last company, I would go and meet with investors and they kept asking me for the chicken and the egg. And at one point I just told one, I just feel like I want to step on the egg and shoot the chicken, you know, because <laughs> it was so repetitive. But, but I guess you were, you were saying then here that the shift kind of like shifted more from like growth of users, perhaps retention to more kind of like the, the revenue growth. I guess the question that I would ask you and perhaps, you know, some advice for those that are listening that are building a business that is more around, you know, the network effects, the marketplaces, should they walk the other way if the investor is asking too much about revenue early on, on the financing cycles? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, yeah, to your point about uh, squashing the egg and shooting the chicken, two-sided marketplaces are so difficult. I, I'm so glad I did it. I don't think there's a startup I could have launched that taught me more. It is so hard to get marketplace liquidity. Uh, so, so correct. The beautiful thing, as you know, is when you have it, and it probably took us three years to get to that, it just runs. And, it, and you just grow naturally when you have both sides, but it's so hard to get to it. In terms of investors, I, I guess two comments. One is, uh, I wouldn't be too precious about it too early. Raising money for marketplace businesses is still really difficult. And I've raised $90 million, and I'm still saying it is difficult. And so I wouldn't be too precious. In the, in the early days, you're going to need to take all the capital you can get. Um, you are going to get a bunch of no's. So I wouldn't rule people out too early. There could be investors who are fantastic and fast, who may not understand marketplace as well as you, but they may be able to bring a brilliant way of thinking about how to bring supply on with a SaaS mentality. So I wouldn't be too picky early. The reality is, Often in the early stages, you're going to want to take all the capital that's given to you, and you may not have multiple term sheets. Saying that, if you do have multiple term sheets, the second point is, of course, like before you get to liquidity, revenue is irrelevant. And 
if if revenue gets in the way of bringing either the consumer onto your platform or the supply side person onto your platform, you should not be trying to charge. In the first two or three years, you will kill your marketplace if you create any barriers to entry from either side. And so back to your point, yes, we our investors were supportive of the fact that we didn't try and monetize the platform for the first three years because it would have created a barrier to entry. Um, you're right. That is yeah. wrong advice. Saying that, in the early days, you kind of need to bring on all the capital that you can. Your job as CEO or as a founder is to convince your investors of the reason to do this. Got it. Got it. And, and you know, marketplaces, liquidity is king. Like you were pointing to finding what you need in the shortest period of time, because otherwise they're going to go elsewhere. So, Anthemos, there's always a first time. And, you know, I guess this is the first time in the history of the DealMaker show that I'm able to interview someone that has been involved on the M&A, but more on the buy side. So you acquired not long ago, uh, Pat Mapper. And, and how did this yeah. come together? Yeah, um, it was, you're, it's kind of rare for a startup um, as early as we did to buy another startup. It was kind of uh, four years in. Um, it, it happens, but it, it, I wouldn't say it's like an obvious part. I knew the CEO for a while. Uh, they, they'd um, uh, been struggling to grow, kind of grow their audience because they didn't have enough listings. Resumper had the get-go, and we had a lot of unique landlords on the platform that no one else had. So kind of strategically, there was this good marriage where they had a great consumer brand, and we had really fantastic supply-side inventory. So we bought them. It was a company. They were a super lean team of uh, under five people. And um, it's been a great deal for Zumper. Like we, we have one backend, one sales team, and then two consumer platforms. Pamapper caters to kind of 25 and under and kind of big college populations. Zumper, which is a little bigger in terms of the audience now, caters more towards like urban professionals um, moving within cities. Um, really good strategy to differentiate the demographics. And uh, we're super happy with how it went down. Got it. I mean, in, in many instances, really acquisitions you know, are great to either fuel growth on the, the company itself, you know, either on the product or perhaps by adding a great talent. And but unfortunately, many, many M&A transactions fail uh, really on the on the integration side of things. So I guess for those listeners that are looking at acquiring other companies to perhaps grow a little bit faster, what kind of advice would you give to them? Yeah, I mean, I. Uh... I, I called it like a cheat I, I with my team, that it was, at the time, Pamapa and Zumper were almost the same size on consumer. Now Zumper's much bigger, but we, we called it like a cheat. And your job as a founder is to identify like vertical cheats where overnight you become bigger than your competitors. So M&A, a strategic partnership, it is your job not just to do the day-to-day -day stuff, but once or twice a year, you should be doing stuff that has a completely linear outcome where one day you're doing you know, 3 million users a month, and the next day you're doing 5 million users a month. That's your job. Saying that, to your point, we see the deal as a successful one, and yet M&A is really hard to integrate. You're exactly right. Um, we thought it would take three to six months to integrate Pamapa uh, and their back end, that engineering product, uh, project, and, and we worked really hard and quickly took over a year to integrate. So we underestimated like how, how much work was required to integrate them by kind of 3x. Um, and so just be prepared that however smart, <laughs> how many, however many smart people have looked at the deal and thought about whether it will work, 
it always takes a little bit more time than you think it will to integrate because there's always some gremlins kind of hiding in the works that you're going to find. Got it. Got it. And and for you, I guess, personally and, and professionally, because I think they, they both got come together. So how how has your leadership and, and management skills changed uh, over the time from leading the company of, let's say, four to 10 you know, folks initially to a company of over 100 employees? Yeah, I mean, your job moves from uh, doing jobs in the first few years. I mean, you're doing various jobs, head of sales, head of finance, head of fundraising, head of like BD. And then now it, your, your job at five, six years in with a team of 100 is to hire an amazing executive team who are all better at doing their job than you would ever be. And so your job is almost as a CEO is to like hire yourself out of a job where you hire people, where you look at them and you think, wow, like, I can't believe you report to me. I learn more from you than you learn from me. And then your job as CEO is to do kind of two or three things. It is to continue to uh, evangelize the vision and the mission of the company and keep everything strategically aligned. Your job is to raise capital and your job is to kind of hire and retain the best talent. That that is where your your focus is. And even though you kind of miss doing some of the the stuff in the weeds and my team continue to tell me to to get away from the weeds and continue to put up to 50,000 foot, you, you have to let it go and trust your team to do a better job than you were doing. Got it. And, you know, I think hiring is is definitely tough, but retaining is even more complicated. So is there any things that you, for example, seen yourself that, that work on that front? Yeah, re retention is something I think about every day. I go to, when people ask me what I'm most nervous about, it's How do we keep our amazing team together? Um, we, you know, a couple of tactics and then one thing that really works. So one is we've always promoted within. So forever, whenever we've needed a role, we always prefer to promote someone instead of hire from outside. And luckily we've made some phenomenal early hires at the company that have all scaled into leadership roles. That's fantastic for retention because those people know that we could have hired from outside, but we bet on them and it worked. And so they see Zumper as the place to build their career not somewhere else. Uh, the second one is have a vision and a mission that people agree with. We all want to deliver this vision of make renting an apartment as easy as booking a hotel. That, that's like quite motivating for people. At the end of the day, though, everything, whether it's senior people, junior people, interns who we want to bring back, is all underpinned by culture. How does the day-to-day -day example work? How much respect is there? How flat is the company? How autonomous can people be at the junior levels? Culture is everything. And so investing in people, making sure I as the CEO spend a lot of time as much as possible with, with people who don't report to me is absolutely critical. And that is ultimately like the fabric of how most companies are run. It is, it is the culture that keeps people here, not the, the compensation or anything else. It is ultimately the culture. Of course. No, and, and, I, and I agree with you there, Anthemos. So I guess, I guess let's say we had the opportunity to put you in front of your younger self, Anthemos, in 2012 before you were to close that seed round. What would be that piece of advice that you would give to your younger self with, you know, everything that you've learned, you know, having this journey ahead of you? Oh, wow. Good question. Uh, I think I'd say forget everything you think you know and everything your education taught you. All of it's going to be important and it will, you know, come out at the right stages. The most important thing is to surround yourself with an amazing support group because it is 
so much harder to build a company than I thought it was. And the emotional resilience you need to get through the dark days and, and come back to the bright days, even now as we're big, like things just get harder. Like, yeah, we have more revenue now, but with that, there are people issues and like huge revenue targets we have to attain. And so the most important thing is surround yourself with a network of family, friends, uh, mentors, peers, your team, your investors, whoever is an, an emotional crutch for you where you can uh, take from them, but also maybe give back to them as well when they're having a tough time. That's the single most important thing is look after your kind of mental health because it is lonely and it is stressful. And if you're able to kind of be resilient, you'll have a great outcome, but it is really hard on some days to push through. So build that around yourself so that you can be happy while running your company. Of course, of course. So that was that was great. So what is the best way, Anthemos, for people that are listening to reach out and say hi? Yeah. Um, uh, if you go to the Zumper website, you can kind of find on Zumper.com various ways to contact us. Or on Twitter, I'm just at Anthemos, A-N-T-H-E-M-O-S on Twitter. And I, uh, yeah, I respond to people. So uh, I'll read it if anyone tweets anything interesting or if I can be uh, helpful in any way. Fantastic. Well, Anthemos, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. No, likewise. I really enjoyed it and uh, great stuff. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.